Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. We're so excited to have Armistead Mopen here. There you go, yeah. And um, I know you know who he is, but I just want to tell you this little story. You know, several weeks ago, I was at this event where, talk, where, where people were showing videos on their coming out experience, and there was a video from India, a video from India, and this Indian boy was telling about how he came out to his parents, and uh, what he did was he actually gave a copy of Tales of the City to his mother. And he said, Mom, I want you to read this book, okay? And the mother read it, and it's like, oh, huh, why is he having me read this book? And then sort of like, you know, it, cl it clicked for him. So um, uh, we're very happy to have him here. Please welcome Armistead Mopan. Thank you very much. Uh, my friend Taylor Negrin. Uh, Uh, I, I'll still tell that story. It was 31 years ago, I guess, when I had my first out-of-town book signing ever, and it was at the Unicorn Bookstore uh, on Santa Monica. And I think it says a lot about my life that when I, I got uh, terribly uh, excited about the fact that I was going to be greeting my fans for the first time, I, sh I showed up there for a signing, and uh, there were four people <laughs> at the signing. Uh, Christopher Isherwood, <laughs> his partner Don Bacardi, and the guy that I had met at Basic Plumbing uh, the night before. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, ask the person next to you. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's lovely to be here tonight. and. Uh, uh, I don't know whether or not to read to you or not, since we're so packed and I want to sign uh, for you and talk to you, too. So um, I think maybe, if it's not a disappointment, we can just talk, just chat. That might be a lot easier. I wish I had my husband here tonight to introduce to you, Christopher Turner. Um, but he told me in a moment of frankness last week that when he came with me on book tours, he felt like Dr. Phil's wife. <laughs> You know, sort of sitting in the audience going, hello. <laughs> so I totally understand. So he's visiting his family back east. Um, and I've been lonely. I've really been lonely. I, was, I just came from Seattle where I walked into my room and the hotel there, uh, the, the, I guess the, all the, I don't know whether the Kemptons all do it, but they give you a, a goldfish to keep you company. <laughs> and there's a little sign that says, hello, my name is Andrea. And I sat there looking at this pathetic creature, sort of wiggling her way around and wondering if that long brown thing hanging onto her was part of her anatomy or was going to sever itself at any time. And uh, the sign of my desperation was that Andrea and I ended up watching Eat, Pray, Love together. Um, Let's talk. Uh, do you, anybody want to ask me any questions about anything? Let's just get going. Yes, sir. Since it's Veterans Day, would you like to discuss your Vietnam? Uh, it's Veterans Day. Would I like to discuss my Vietnam experience? Um, 
No, except that it still pisses me off that, uh, <laughs> that uh, you know, I was a queer serving my country and I had to hide and that's, that people still have to do that. <laughs> my, my, my lovely young niece uh, celebrated Veterans Day, someone I adore, she's just had a baby, but she's been raised in the South. And uh, she had a quote from Reagan about the value of veterans. And I think mostly what I hate on Veterans Day is the way in which people use people who actually do serve their countries in a way to pump up all sorts of false patriotic ideals and support the wrong issues and the wrong ideas, you know. I understand as well as anybody what it takes for somebody to go put themselves into a situation like that. But um, uh, I don't know what else to say about it, really. Um, I wish we didn't have wars. I don't feel proud of having served in a war that had no purpose whatsoever. And uh, and I, it's very hard for us to say that to the young men and women who are serving in Iraq and Afghanistan because their lives are on the line. But I don't know that we should keep using young people as cannon fodder and justification. <laughs> for what a good Republican like Dwight Eisenhower described as the military warned us that this thing was coming. And it has, and it, it, war is a way of life, and even our current president seems to understand that principle. So that's what I feel about it. <laughs> um, yes, let's not talk about that anymore. <laughs> yes. Well, a little bit on that is that you once shared an anecdote about how you left how I left uh, Cambodia? Yeah, I was the last GI to 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 uh, withdraw from Cambodia when Nixon sent the troops in. Uh, it happened because I was on a little 40-foot um, boat. It wasn't a ship; it was a boat uh, that was stationed up at the what was the 40-mile limit. And uh, the the American press. This was the first time. This is really the first televised war helped to bring it to an end in a way, but uh, the, the, somebody from ABC News came and said that we wanted to film our boat because we were going to be the last boat heading down the river into Vietnam and that would, and so it didn't take me long to figure out that uh, the guy who was standing on the stern of the boat when we crashed, crossed the border <laughs> would be the last, um, you know, have the distinction of being the last GI to pull out of Cambodia. So I, I, we had a pump that took water out of the river that we used as a shower. Uh, and you, so I, the, the logical way to not draw attention to myself was to get naked. <laughs> and shower uh, on, uh, on the stern of the boat. And so I was taking, you know, this long shower waiting for the, the, the Vietnamese border to show up when this fucking lieutenant commander <laughs> clearly had the same goal in mind. <laughs> and when he saw me, he got, he climbed out onto the anchor winch and was, you know, trying to beat me. To, well, we had this ridiculous thing that ended up looking like the, you know, a figurehead of a ship on reverse where we were. <laughs> <laughs> but I made it, <laughs> and I was, and I don't have no idea what that distinction means to this day, but uh, I was the last GI out of Cambodia. That's, this, that's that story. Yes? I'm going to say something about all the hatred that children are dealing with. Yes. Yeah. 
might have actually talked to us. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing is, though, from, coming from your standpoint, you also were raised as a Southerner, and you were also in the closet. I guess I wasn't able to be in the closet, um, whether I realized it or not. Um, what is your thoughts of what would you say to these kids? I mean, just as much as everybody's been doing the programs now saying, the It's Get Better, the It Gets Better program. Yeah, well, I said it in 1977 when I had Michael Tolliver write his mother during the initial Anita Bryant campaign where he says, no, mom, I wasn't recruited. No seasoned homosexual ever served as my mentor. But you know what? I wish someone had. I wish someone older than me and wiser than the people in Orlando had taken me aside and said, you're all right, kid. You're not crazy or sick or evil. You can grow up and to be a doctor or a teacher like anybody else. But no one ever said that to me, Mama. I had to find it out on my own. And so, uh, you know, I had everything I had to say about that 32 years ago, and it really saddens me that it's, the message is, is still not home. I think the brilliance of Dan Savage's campaign is that for the first time he's asked us as adults to take responsibility for that and take care of our children. And not, I think there was a reaction when Anita Bryant did do the, uh, you know, they all recruit children thing that everyone said, oh, well, we, we mustn't talk about teenagers. Or, I, hell, teenagers, I knew when I was nine years old, not in a sexual way, I knew it, it was my nature. I, I knew that there was something wrong with me because I didn't like the war movies the way the other kids did, you know? <laughs> um, so, um, that's happening now. And if there's a, I try not to be the person who puts the bright, you know, the, the silver lining on everything, but the reality is that gay kids have been killing themselves for years. The suicide rate has always been higher than that of other kids, and we're just hearing about it now, and we're hearing about it because their parents aren't putting up with it anymore, because there are adults who are saying, this is what happened to my child in this school. So uh, it's progress. We're getting there. We are getting there. We have to believe it as adults that it gets better because it's hard to sometimes uh, when this becomes such an endless up and down battle over DADT and everything else. And our friends, you know, promise us things. Our friends, the Democrats, promise us things and then discard us at the last minute when it proves too hot to handle. So we have to keep up the have to keep up the pressure. That letter, by the way, I'm looking at your Scissor Sisters t-shirt here, <laughs> has been, it's been adapted over the years. There, as some of you know, the, uh, the gay men's choruses have a, a long version of it. Uh, Jason Sellards, Jake Shears, and John Garden of the Scissor Sisters have written a beautiful little version of it that will be performed when Tales of the City, the musical, has its world premiere. <laughs> Starring Betty Buckley as Anna Madrigal. <laughs> Sometimes I think I've had more than one queen can handle. 
I sat the other day at the workshop and watched her sing this new, sh you know, it was wonderful to watch those guys who are so talented and who, ha who have no vanity about what they do. They, they uh, you know, if the song they don't think, they think is not working, they toss it out and do another one. And suddenly when they realized they had Betty Buckley on their hands, just, oh my God, we've got to write a song for Betty Buckley, you know? So they did this second act, or this first act closer that just, just ripped my heart out and I was this distance from her when she was trying it out for the first time. And it's very interesting to find in my dotage <laughs> that I now relate so much more strongly to the romance between Anna and Edgar than I do <laughs> to the kids that I wrote about, you know. Yes. There were several young women that I knew um, in San Francisco that uh, that, ha that had, you know, they were friends. I was just close to them and I could sort of see what their dilemma was and what it was like to come there. Uh, there was also B, by the way. <laughs> I, you know, I am very much Marianne. Uh, I, I get a little defensive when people say, why did she become such a bitch? And I say, what do you mean? Uh, there's something about Marianne that makes me want to sort of put forth the darker side of myself because I have this sort of sunny exterior and yet the wheels are turning inside and I am forming judgments and um, I do that. And I think that's, that was the real miracle when we were, when we were shooting the miniseries that this young actress came along who seemed to understand her from the inside out and as a consequence we, the moment that Laura Linney and I looked at each other, we, 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 we understood um, how the other one thought. So it's been a, that's been one of the great pleasures of this experience too, is, be, is becoming so close to her over the years, becoming her friend and having her understand that. This book is dedicated to her. Um, a couple of years ago when Christopher and I got married, I asked Laura if she would come and we had a little, a, a small wedding, <laughs> what we could afford. Uh, and uh, my friend Amy Tan let us use her garden. And, uh, and I asked Laura if she would come and read this James Broughton poem that Chris had read to me on the phone when we were first seeing each other. So she came out and read the poem. and broke all our hearts and then told me she thought it was one of the most beautiful poems she'd ever read and four months later she called me and said would you come to Connecticut and read it at my wedding <laughs> um, but there were I have I hear sometimes from people who apparently have been telling their friends for 30 years that they were the model for Marianne Singleton or <laughs> Michael Tolliver or any of them and, and uh, they really aren't um, it's some of the minor characters were inspired by local characters. Um, Prue Giroux, the, 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 the gossip columnist, was a sort of spoof of uh, Pat Montendon, a woman named Pat Montendon, uh, who's the mother of a terrific writer named Sean Wilsey. I remember him when he was this high. Uh, and he's now blurbed the Marianne in Autumn, so I'm feeling really old. <laughs> he wrote a wonderful book a few years ago called Oh, the Glory of It All, all about growing up in San Francisco with this extremely unusual family. 
Um, yes. What do you think it is about San Francisco that makes it an attraction to all of these magical things that come out? Uh, uh, makes it an attraction to. A lot of people write about San Francisco oh, the, in such a magical way that. Not any other city there. Well, it, it, there's, there's something just physically about the place, isn't there? I mean, to me, uh, it, it is the, it, the town is the nature of storytelling itself. You'll, you'll go around the corner and see some view you've never seen before in this tiny place. It's perfectly possible. I, I was uh, doing a sort of public interview in the home of Alexander McCall Smith, who writes the... Um, and number one ladies detective agency series and the is my favorite the Isabel Dalhousie series and he's this amazing old world man who lives in a in Edinburgh he's younger than I am but <laughs> he's old world and uh, you know has a wears a kilt on the cover of his book and and the the the, the Edinburgh paper was there and and that came up and I said um, well, the thing about San Francisco is it's just perfectly possible, as it happened in my story, to run into your wife's gynecologist at the baths. <laughs> and Sandy sort of drew himself up and said, Armistead, there are children present. <laughs> By which he met his 22-year-old med student daughter. <laughs> but uh, that, in fact, well, it wasn't my wife's gynecologist, but the... Uh, the so many things in Tales of the City that are these preposterous coincidences actually happen to me. So I think it's the, the small town nature of the place, that it sort of embraces you like a village. Um, and it's, it was, I realized when I was given the opportunity to write this story in the paper and that I could tell it to the whole town that it was going to serve me very well. And people told me their stories. I didn't know, for instance, that Anna Madrigal's name was an anagram when I created her name. Somebody wrote in and said, I know what her secret is because her name's an anagram. And it's, you know, it's a man and a girl. And I. <laughs> we didn't have computers then, so I, I wrote it on little pieces of paper and moved it around. And I, motherfucker, it is. So I acted like I'd been that clever all along. <laughs> and uh, there's a storyline involving uh, Dorothea Wilson, who goes on to become Dee Dee's life partner and raise children with her, and who is in this book, by the way. She wouldn't let me keep her out. <laughs> she came in halfway through, and I was so happy to see her again, I could hardly stand it. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I had created a character, somebody wrote in and said, shame on you, uh, up until, uh, she, they said, uh, well, uh, first of all, I was criticized, rightfully, that the cast was so white. I was fresh out of the South, and I really didn't understand the nature of the city's diversity as well as I should have, so I thought, I'm going to have an African-American character, and I was a mailboy at, at an ad agency, that's where I got my ad agency from, so I thought, well, I can have this chic black model that works there and I can make her believable because I don't have to give her any kind of street lingo that would sound ridiculous that I wouldn't know how to do. So I created Dorothea Wilson and uh, somebody said, shame on you up until now all of your characters have rung true, but Dorothea is nothing in the world but a white woman in black skin. 
and I was stricken for about 30 minutes and then I thought that is a great idea <laughs> so I went to the library at the Chronicle and I checked out black like me and found out which is a book written back then about a white man who darkened his skin and found out exactly how you could do it and um, so it, it, it was a growing it was a an organic process Yes. Um, well, she's Mary Ann is uh, well. Not that Laura couldn't do. Laura could do anything. But Mary Ann is 57 in this book. So comparatively, Laura's a spring chicken. There have been no offers to make it into a movie, and I don't know that that would ever that would happen. Um, yes. When you were writing this, uh, I mean, the first books. What part of San Francisco were you living in? What, what neighborhood? Uh, Russian Hill. I started on Russian Hill. I lived in the Pent Shack. The Pent Shack that figures in this book <laughs> was, was where it was my one of, I had several little apartments. I had a little place on the edge of Pacific Heights, but I left that because I, six weeks after I'd landed in Oz, I got hepatitis and had to go home to North Carolina. <laughs> and explain to my parents how one gets hepatitis. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I ended up finding this great little place on Russian Hill that was actually a, uh, just a tiny little one, barely big enough for the bed. I remember when my parents came to visit and we went out to one of those unpainted furniture places to buy me a bed and I was looking at all the double captain's beds with you know so we could have drawers under it to have more storage space and and uh, my mother was saying we'd have much more room if you just got a single bed you don't really need a double bed <laughs> and my father was saying god damn it Diana of course he wants a double bed you know <laughs> very very awkward <laughs> and I wasn't out at the time I came out to them in that letter uh, the one that I was referencing, that was the way I came out to them, in a rather cowardly way, actually, because I had a fictitious character do it to his parents, but they, they got the point. Yeah. I was uh, living in the pan. Were you? Well, we all have our little corner of the world there. I live over in that neighborhood now, um, not far from there in Parnassus Heights. Uh-huh. Yes, okay. Uh, uh, yes. Pat, is that you? Yes. Oh, come here. Prue is amongst us. <laughs> Can you come here? There's no room, is there? How fabulous. I'm so honored. <laughs> You're so beautiful. Can we get a staff person to guide her? Can you help? Come up here. Uh, right behind you. How fabulous is that? If you build her, she will come. <laughs> yes, another question until Pat gets up here. Uh, so my question, I don't know how to necessarily phrase it, but I'm curious how you talked about Marianne being a part of you back then. Uh, I feel <laughs> Sorry. 
This woman is the best sport in the world. I am. She, <laughs> sometimes. She, she may sometimes. Well, don't piss her off. But you got it. She she uh, she had me over to her house when we when we found out we were neighbors and. Uh, uh, we go way back. We go way but back. You don't want to hear him anymore. You want to hear me. Yeah. <laughs> Take it away, girl. <laughs> Can I tell you a few things about Armistead? <laughs> the first time he came to see me, the first time he came to see me on Russian Hill in San Francisco, I was so pissed at him. He had written this whole thing in the Chronicle and he had made fun of my round tables and I'm like mad as hell. And he had said, Patty called and he said, I really want to write about you for American West, was it, magazine? New West, yeah. New West. Well, you know, I'm 82 now. No, I forget it, names it showing, honey. and numbers. Oh, thank you. But anyway, I was really pissed. So, but anyway, I thought, okay, I'll give him a chance. He comes in. I can't tell you how gorgeous he was. He looked like a young Robert Redfield. Now, now I don't even look like an old one. <laughs> Darling, I'm getting to that. <laughs> uh, and you know, sometimes as we get older, for those of you who are still young, uh, we love our enemies even more than our friends. <laughs> You taught me a lot. She taught me a lot about about the nature of forgiveness, basically. I saw how sweet she was to me after I'd had such... I, well, you, did, you do claim it on the jacket of your own book, so you can't be too humiliated. <laughs> no, I love you, and I just think that you're fabulous, and I, I so admire your writing skill and your abilities, and... You, do you remember that you ate, do you remember what you ate for dessert at my house once? <laughs> no. <laughs> Why not? Why? Eskimo pies. Now who would forget that? <laughs> so anyway, I'm really glad to be Thank here. Thank you. I'm so honored that you came. Thank and you I so much. And I brought you a copy of my book. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Sell, sell, sell. Her son Sean's name, uh, the name of his book is Oh, the Glory of It All. Pat's book is called Oh, the Hell of It All. You look so great. Oh, I'm really Let me know where I can get in touch with you. I will. I will. Okay. Well, um, and Brett, you saved a seat for me somewhere. Are you on Facebook? I bet you are. Of course. Well, all right. We'll friend each other. <laughs> but uh, no, who can tell you? Can you help her know yeah, and yeah. tell her where I am and everything? Oh, yeah, yeah, sit there. Please. Sit there. And then I can just butt in. Yeah. <laughs> I knew that she was still up to her old sassy ways because I saw you selling your James Bond model Thunderbird, whatever it was, on eBay not too long ago. You drove it to, to L.A. You drove it here tonight. Oh my God! We didn't sell it, huh? Nobody bought it. Oh well. <laughs> You've just met a great San Francisco institution. Anybody else from the book? <laughs> 
Yes. Oh, by the way, when you know when Mary Kay Place played Prue Giroux in the miniseries, and Pat said, "I want to meet her," and I remember when you first saw a picture of her, you said, "Well, she's pretty." <laughs> And it turned out they were both from Oklahoma. They had all these things in common. And, uh, and I think that one of the reasons that, the, that, the, uh, that, that Mary Kay got into it so well was that she fell in love with Pat. And I fell in love with her. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> But I'm curious, the entire time I was reading my travels, I felt, um, I'm curious how, I don't want to say autobiographical, but how much you're pulling from who you are now, especially now that you say that uh, there was a lot of you and Mary Ann in the, in the earlier book. Yeah. How much of me is in Michael Tolliver? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just still, I use a lot of stuff from my own life, I do. I mean, that's I, all, all I have to draw on now, so. Oh, it's all I've ever had to draw on. So, yeah, I hang out a lot at the dog park these days. <laughs> uh, yeah, very much of it, a lot of it's there. I mean, the things that happen, it's, this is ticklish, because then you, people is, assume that the adventures of Michael and Ben are always the adventures of me and Christopher so and I and I, I'm a writer I get to lie you know so I just I use it but I try to fire it with an emotional truth and that comes from you know pulling from your own embarrassment embarrassments and joys yes sir Was there any part that was more difficult to write than others? Let's see. Um, I, no, I don't think I, I, I it's always difficult, this is a weird thing to say because I do it a lot, I do it a fair amount, but anything that's sort of sexually honest, I don't, I can put it on paper, but the minute I'm in the, in the recording studio and find myself reading this filth, <laughs> Um, I don't really think of it that way, but it's funny. I get, I get all blushy and uh, weird about it. Um, but this was a hard, I don't know, this was slower for me, a lot slower. And maybe some of the relationship stuff, you had to be honest. The, the negotiating of, a, of an open marriage um, and finding the thing that's real for you, finding, you know, finding the core uh, and writing about that. That uh, you know, I know that I'm getting closer to to other people's truths when I'm making myself squirm. <laughs> so I try not to run away from it. Yes. Oh, hey, Dennis. Hi. Um, was there an experience that you got to have, or a person you got to meet because of your books that just seemed random in your mind? Oh. Well, you thought. I well, I've had the book find its way to people when I wrote Maybe the Moon, which was my only Hollywood novel um, that was inspired by a friend of mine named Tammy Dutro, who actually wore the E.T. suit. She was the shortest woman in the world at one point in the Guinness Book of World Records. And um, so I wrote the novel, and Daryl Hannah uh, optioned it, thinking that she could play the, the tall, blonde roommate. Oh, okay. 
and uh, and I so I got to know Daryl and really liked her and met with her a couple had meetings with her a couple of times at, uh, uh, in in LA and this was the time when she was dating John Kennedy Jr and was having to take this really circuitous route around town to stay away from the paparazzi. And Daryl uh, told me somewhat after the fact, it never became a movie of course, but she took the book to her, to Jackie Onassis in the hospital when Jackie was dying as a way to engage her and, um, and, and said, you know, you're an editor, read this book and let me know what you think of it. And um, and Jackie wrote her back and said, halfway through it, I didn't think it'd be a movie at all, and by the time it was over, I realized it was one or something to that. I've never seen the letter. I think Daryl's holding it hostage <laughs> until we actually make the movie. But um, uh, I'm just kidding, of course. But that kind of blew me away in, in, a, in the sense of... Uh, the, 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 the real miracle, of course, as you know, as a writer, is that your book can travel and be your ambassador and can sit in someone's mountain cabin for three years until someone else picks it up. It's, it, as, a, as a form of art, it's kind of great in that way. Um, something you can't do on Kindle, by the way. Um, Having said that, Michael Tolliver Lives will be, a will be available free on Kindle next week. Um, but you know, people find you know people find their way to it. That same book, which has had such a strange history, um, Jim Courier, who used to be the number two tennis champion in the world, was spotted reading it between what do they call it changeovers. He was reading a book to the horror of sportscasters internationally, and I suppose even more horrifying that it was my book. And he recently said, when he was asked about it, he said, I should have the damn book bronzed because nobody ever asked me about anything but that, you know? Uh, um, so, yes? Besides writing, do you have any other great passions interests? Do I have, you're assuming that writing is a great passion. <laughs> <laughs> Having written is my greatest passion. I, I like getting it over with. Uh, but um, I don't have a lot. No, I'm very, I'm very domestic. I don't mean that I'm a good housekeeper, but I like hanging around the house. Um, I'm very, I'm very much a homebody. I love my dog and my husband, and I'm happy that I'm in a place when I can, that can just be my life. Uh, I remember the great Christopher Isherwood once saying to me, life is so much simpler when you've narrowed it down to one person. And uh, I get it. Yes? You don't recognize me. I'm Susan Beckton. We've been up two blocks from each other. Oh my God, Susan, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing fine. How are you? <laughs> if you'd talked a little longer, I would have figured it out. <laughs> How are you, sweetie? Sooner or later, you'll all be kissed. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm fine. So well, yeah. I love all your books on San Francisco, and the first time I went to San Francisco, you just moved there. You probably maybe didn't remember it, just from Charleston. You gave me the great tour. But you never write anything about the South, and I just wonder... 
Well, I moved, I, did, I didn't write about the Carolinas because I was still in the closet and I was, so I decided to make Michael from Orlando so that wouldn't incriminate me too much if he was writing his parents. No, it's not. <laughs> Except in the way it votes, but. <laughs> um, but no, I haven't. I used to, I used to, I had fantasies for writing a southern novel when I was little. I, I had to, I was going to write a novel called Fetch It from Jaffet, which is, <laughs> that's all you need right there. It's like, it's, 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 it's somewhere in Shakespeare. I've forgotten where, but it's like the sons of Shem and Ham and, you know, where the race is divided and I guess the Caucasians were the, the Japheth or whatever and the, Noah's sons, thank you very much. And uh, well, that's as far as I got was the title. <laughs> but I, ha I no, I haven't. I don't. Uh, maybe one of these days, but I don't know it anymore. And I, I've not not much anymore. I'm really happy. I brought, if you remember, my father. Uh, I, I brought Christopher back to meet him three years ago before he died, and we drove him all over town. Yeah, he would be—he would have been 96 yesterday. Um, and I thought about that when I heard that the book could hit the New York Times bestseller list because when he when he um, when I wrote the Night Listener, actually I do write about the South in the Night Listener. I moved it to I moved it, I moved it to Charleston, <laughs> but he knew. And the book was dedicated to him. And he kept it on his desk. I mean, this is a very hidebound Southern conservative, and he very proudly kept it on his desk at his office, where he would come in every day to look at porn on his computer. <laughs> <laughs> I got that, by the way, from him. I mean, he was a wonderfully ribald, sweet guy. I mean, I, that, that's the part that I remember now was how funny he could be. He had a real Rabelaisian spirit. Yes? Glad to be here. No, there are no plans for the series to continue. I mean, it would be very hard to do at this point. It's been 10 years. Um, and I'd have a hard time imagining it, recasting it or who knows, maybe. But right now, I'm pleasantly occupied with the, the thought of the musical happening. Yes, sir. How did, how did the musical come together? Yeah, uh, Jeff Whitty, who wrote the, the libretto for um, Avenue Q, says he was on a um, red-eye flight to London and had uh, the Tales miniseries on his laptop, and the light bulb went off. And he thought, perfect, there's a diva of a certain age, the middle of it, and younger people in a house, and, uh, and an era. And, uh, and he brought on board um, Jason Moore, who directed Avenue Q, and in discussing the who should compose it, he sort of said, have you ever heard of the Scissor Sisters? And all I'd heard up to that point was Filthy Gorgeous, um, but I got the albums and... Um, Back in the 70s. Well, it, you know, that, there are a couple of really great uh, numbers that are sort of 
period flavored. Um, there's one called uh, "Defending Our uh, Defending My Life." That's the the uh, the big jockey shorts dance contest number. <laughs> um, and. Uh, so the, yes, that style serves it very well, but they've also done these some beautiful ballads and they're character songs. They, they, they illuminate the people that are singing them in a way that often doesn't happen really in a, in a musical. The style shifts. Mona, when she finally hits bottom and, and smokes angel dust and gets on the bus to Reno, <laughs> sings a song uh, called Seeds and Stems. <laughs> That uh, it is straight out of Janis Joplin. I mean, it's uh, it's really uh, you know suits the character. Dee Dee. There's some amazing comedy songs for Dee Dee. Uh, Kate Rinders was playing her in the workshop, uh, and uh, she sings not only a song while she's seducing the grocery boy, but uh, a <laughs> an "Oh My God, I'm Pregnant" song from the stirrups at the gynecologist's office. <laughs> So they've they've really they've done us proud. <laughs> um, yes. How far into the book does the cover? It's the it's the whole book, the whole first book. Mona's storyline with Dorothea has been removed because it was hard enough doing the race change in a miniseries. On stage, it might just f get a big groan from the audience, and that would be that. So they, I think they've very cleverly taken, the, 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 well, as you just heard, the second in More Tales of the City when Mona runs off to Winnemucca. So um, we've got Mother Mucca is in the musical. And this might be a nice moment to recognize the great work of Jackie Burroughs, who died last month, <laughs> uh, who, who played Mother Mucka in the miniseries. Thank you. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, and that allows us to have a whorehouse number, but it ain't the Dolly Parton whorehouse. <laughs> the song is called Ride Em Hard and Put Em Down Wet. Uh, it's very, very funny and very dirty. Um, uh, an applause for a very dirty song from the lady in the back. Yes. <laughs> well, I think I'm probably using up the air in here, so maybe we'd better sign some books. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming tonight. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.